Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. Finance is quickly moving from digital platforms into an era of hyper-personalization where every user will be able to have ultimate control of their data, their devices, and their value propositions. This will have a profound effect on the way banking's done and the way society interacts with banking. Financial institutions are at risk if this transformation is not fully understood. With democratized finance, individuals will be able to personalize every aspect of finance, including their products, their services, the currencies, and all aspects of sustainability. I'm excited to have Emmanuel Daniel, global thought leader, financial industry expert, publisher, and author of the book, The Great Transition. The personalization of finance is here. Emmanuel shares how financial institutions will need to be organized in the future and the impact the personalization function is going to have on all aspects of the banking ecosystem. Our guest today proposes that the personalization of finance is not about banks offering personalized products and services. It's about the users of finance being able to create their own personalized solutions based on financial tokens, blockchain, and other technologies in a networked world. This is a massive transformation compared to what we know today, shifting from a platform industry to a world where every user creates their own banking and individual interaction experience. So Emmanuel, before we dig into your new book, can you provide a little bit of background on your career and the journey you've, that you've taken to get here today? Hey, Jim. Uh, you know, as, as, as we were saying to each other at the beginning, uh, before we started recording, we both exist in the same universe. We yeah. both know about each other, but and and somehow uh, we've never had the chance to you know lock in with each other. Um, I started the Asian Banker in um, 1996, and uh, and out of Singapore, so that's like the other side of the world. And I started it after having you know I was trained to be a lawyer and spent 10 years in consulting you know in the wilderness of trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I thought that. Um, a banking publication, as it were, uh, is an excuse to go around the region. Like, you know, in five hours, you go from Boston to, you know, Las Vegas or to uh, to San, San, San Francisco. But in five hours in Asia, you'd go through seven countries or nine countries. So yeah. the big thing is that um, how do I create a platform that is respected across, you know, well over 30 countries uh, in Asia, uh, uh, countries with good banking systems and so on. So that was my thing with Asian Banker. Uh, and so then I, I wanted to start something which was uh, in what I call a cathedral industry, something which, uh, you know, the, the biggest cathedral industry is government, and then comes banking. You land in any country, uh, you know, you will have to deal with a banking system. Uh, you'll meet the most important people who will be bankers, uh, you know, and, and you will understand um, the society because, you know, it's cradle to grave and so on. So I, I see I see financial services as a cathedral industry in any country. And I use that as an excuse to travel to all of the different countries and meet with the CEOs and so on. And because I was a pioneer in that, I, I'd say that today, um, you know, I'm I'm well connected with um, you know chairmen and so on um, in all the countries that I serve. 
Um, at the same time, it was also a story of uh, Asia's growth. Um, at first, it was the tiger countries, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, and then came China with the big one. Right. And uh, to have a front seat view of the development of these countries and to see how they progressed and uh, and just ripped it off in terms of uh, becoming, you know, you know, very leading edge countries in technology and in, in infrastructure and all that. Uh, that was uh, that is a big satisfaction in my personal career. Uh, and of course, I used all the time using banking and financial services as the background, um, you know, for the excuse of building a business uh, that is commercially viable and yet capturing uh, the story of the growth of Asia. And today we are in uh, in the Middle East. We are in Africa. So the name Asian and banker doesn't apply. We are not Asian anymore. <laughs> and we're not banker either. You know, so. Uh, you know, fi financial services is not just banks, it's now fintech and all of the others. So so it's been expanding that way. And one thing else, uh, one other thing I want to tell you is this, that because we were the Asian banker, believe it or not, uh, that gave me an excuse to meet a lot of uh, North American bankers who, are, who are curious about Asia. Yep. So I spent, for example, one of my really good and uh, enduring friendships with, is with Dick Kovacevic, uh, Wells Fargo. Yep. I spent three weeks with him, uh, you know, and, and who gets to spend three weeks with someone who's built, you know, such a beautiful organization before, you know, all of the troubles. And he yeah. used to go around Asia with this uh, value statement that he had. And he said that, you know, what holds Wells Fargo together uh, is, is our values uh, statement. Uh, and then everything started to unravel. So I, I was able to get um, a behind-the-scenes view uh, of the institution that he had built and 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 why un unraveled and and, and I have my opinion on those things, uh, and people like Vernon Hill, um, you know, who's uh, yep. who was uh, bank Commerce Bank Corp originally, and yep. and just observing how he built a bank which was very um, liability centric. That means banking uh, is deposit centric, and just by keeping the deposit relationship um, harnessed. Uh, he was able to be the lowest cost deposit gatherer uh, of commercial banks in, in the U.S. Uh, and then from there, you know, um, uh, invested that in Main Street and uh, in Wall Street and so on. And when he, and then watching him try to repeat that story uh, in London, I think uh, he 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 he'd, um, he'd started a bank called Metro Bank. And yep. London was different from the Midwest on the U.S. Uh, because it was an expensive city. So the idea that the branch should be um, the, the linchpin of the relationship uh, didn't hold very well there. And then and then more more recently, I think he's in, uh, he got into trouble in in uh, in Philadelphia or something, uh, trying to build that branch relationship type um, model. Uh, and then seeing that. Uh, technology had changed that, um, you know, the the importance of the branch and so on. So, so uh, although I'm out there, um, you know, away from what you where you are, uh, I had a I had a, a view of from outside in uh, to be able to see, um, you know, some of the uh, evolutions taking place in in North America. So, so that's been my story, um, you know, and uh, and then today. Um, because of my book, uh, I, I want uh, the ideas that I'm developing to be more global uh, and, um, and, and, you know, and, and something that's relevant uh, to bankers around the world. You know, it, it's interesting, Emmanuel. You and I both benefit tremendously by the ability to build content around observing an industry. And, and you mentioned it really well. I have seen more of the world in the last five years, not counting the COVID years, but over the last five years, 
than I ever thought I ever would and met with more bankers, more banks, more different dynamics of how to pr progress, including the Asia market and, and visiting WeBank and Tencent and, and Ant and everything else. And it, it's just so we're very fortunate in that, but it also gives us a bird's eye view of what's really happening. And, you know, it's interesting. I started banking 40 years ago. I actually started in a bank being a banker. And we talked about personalization even then. And in fact, our discussion then was around using data to drive individualized experiences, but revolving around or revolving around products and services and channels that didn't move nearly as fast. So when you're in your book, you talk about the personalization of banking, but it's not personalization as it was previously defined. How is your application of personalization of finance different? You know, um, one of the challenges that I have is when I use the phrase, the personalization of finance, everyone in the industry thinks that they know what I'm talking about. And everyone assumes that- Myself included, yes. Well, you know, and, and yeah. you and I both, uh, were carrying the narrative from the practitioners. You know, they say, oh, personalization means more of my products uh, with the customer and the customer is in love with me uh, because I'm giving him, uh, I'm making him feel like um, I understand his needs. Um, and, and it's supply side definition. Uh, the personalization I'm talking about is the, the user side definition, which is uh, I, as the customer, get to decide what the product should be in the first place, um, you know, and, and it's not a deposit, uh, and it's not a mortgage loan, uh, you know, and and then I will go around and interact not just with the financial institutions but with everyone uh, to try and create a universe that is me, um, you know, and this is something that uh, people who are on the institution side, on the supply side, uh, really need to start uh, harnessing into their thinking that. The personalization is not about the institution or on the product, but it's on the on the user, on 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 the community, um, you know, on the demand side of the equation. Um, I think that I think that um, that's very difficult because that in itself is a transition because um, you know technology and what where we see personalization taking place today is not even in financial services. Um, you know, when I was writing the book. Um, I was going through a journey myself in trying to absorb all the transitions that have been taking place uh, and then to um, make sense of it and understand where it's going before I was able to uh, crystallize it into a, a, you know, a, a truism or, or an idea that I think uh, we all need to understand. So the first thing I'll say is that uh, technology itself is moving from its platform uh, era uh, into the personalization era. And guess what? The people who, are, who do not believe that is happening at all are the people who are in the platform era. So the Facebooks, the, you know, the Amazons and so on, they truly believe that they're going to continue acing uh, the, the platform, platformization of, of technology, of, of supply chains, of, of relationships and so on. In other words, um, um, the, a business model only works if the customer uh, puts his data, puts his content on my platform uh, and my ability to be able to harness and, and gather a lot of customers. But that's slowly eroding. Um, and I tell the platform people, remember when Facebook first started, 
It was a desktop application, and it didn't nearly didn't make that transition into mobile in 2010. Uh, 27 was about when um, you know the Apple iPhone came about, and there was a lot more power on the mobile device. Facebook, you know, missed that opportunity, and then it moved to um, um, you know to to mobile uh, almost as a laggard because by 2010 the Chinese applications like uh, uh, WeChat and Alipay were mobile native, were more mobile native than than. Facebook was. And this is the year that Facebook uh, has started to lose customers. Um, you know, this is the, in 2022, is the first year that uh, Facebook's uh, customer um, um, growth has started to uh, go into decline. Uh, and then you look at uh, new mobile native players like uh, Bit, uh, like, um, uh, you know, like TikTok, for example, um, and you think that, you know, they are going to have a run maybe 10 years or so. But even TikTok is, you know, um, is is under, um, um, you know, under kind of a pressure uh, because um, the metaverse, the the three-dimensional universe, is going to be, you know, reinventing uh, even that uh, mobile native uh, universe. And as this is happening, uh, the customer is giving less data to the platforms. The customer is uh, demanding for uh, greater control over his data. Uh, and because of blockchain and, and so on, um, when you see some of the developments taking place in cryptocurrencies today, um, the players who thought that they could ace the cryptocurrency game by creating exchanges are finding that the cryptocurrency players are avoiding exchanges. They're trying to interact with each other directly. So the cryptocurrency exchanges um, are not working as, as well as uh, exchanges in the past. So these are some of the transitions that we need to start um, you know, uh, absorbing uh, to understand uh, this great transition, I mean, the title of the book. Uh, and that's why I, I, you know, I came up with the title, because look at what is happening. It's glacial, but it is, it is right there in front of us. Um, you know, and then all of this has an impact on everything we do in business, um, you know what we define as being products. Um, so I'm saying to I'm saying to uh, bankers that you know think about what you think of this product and think about the holiest product that you have, the deposit account. You know mm -hmm. when you when you read when you read uh, what the IMF says about uh, financial inclusion, IMF says, tries to say that. Um, you know, what the poor need is a bank account, like, you know, whatever percentage of poor people around the world do not have a bank account. Uh, no, they don't want a bank account. You know, they, they want a life. They want to be able to buy things. They, they want to be able to interact with each other. Uh, but a bank account is exactly what they're not asking for. Um, and, you know, uh, today, more than 2.7 billion people around the world have got digital wallets. Uh, and that's going to double to four point something. I have the number somewhere. OK, and, and yeah. it's going to double. Uh, Juniper, Juniper Research says it's going to go up to um, 4.8 billion by 2025. So uh, the world is already in transition. Um, um, you know, the end user, the customer in financial services is getting taking more control um, of uh, where he wants to interact and how he wants to interact. You know, um, when you think about Kodak and, and, and the 35mm film, um, you, you wonder why Kodak hung on to that film even into the 2000s 
when it was Kodak itself that invented the digital phone, uh, digital camera. I mean, like they, they were one of the players who, who aced the game of the digital camera in 1995, you know, and, uh, and yet they held on to the uh, 35mm um, physical film uh, right into the 2000, uh, right. 2000s, and it, it became a huge cost base to them. So, so I'm trying to challenge bankers in saying that, you know what, um, um, there are no holy cows in finance today. Uh, it's, the, it's the customer, it's the end user who's redefining how he wants to interact with financial institutions. Um, and that's the great transition, and that's the personalization uh, that I'm talking about. And I've, I've said this uh, in, a, in, a, in using many words, uh, you know, in trying to get this message across to you, uh, because the transition is actually very complex uh, and very subtle, um, you know, and so we need to get the definitions right first. When we look at what you're talking about, a lot of the foundation, I believe, is there. You, you, you have a lot of underpinnings of this trans transformation. What components, from your perspective, are in place today, and what elements still need some maturation? You know, that's a very important question uh, because I find myself, have, after having written the book and 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 then you know throwing out throwing the idea out there, the pushback I get is from uh, people with a vested interest to. Uh, to protect uh, the existing order, right? And and the existing order has got a gravy train, um, 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 a hierarchy of uh, dependents uh, that need to be needs to be disintegrated, uh, you know, going forward. And it's very difficult to do that. Now, take the American uh, payment systems, for example. Um, in Africa today, uh, payments is nothing more than a message between two phone sets. Uh, when you take something like uh, M-Pesa, for example, it's two people who own phones send a message to each other. And the payment is uh, is is completed. Now, building applications around that is another story. Okay, so that's a a, a question of bandwidth uh, and and also regulation and stuff like that. So, what the regulator will allow uh, the telcos to do on on in financial services that they they you know they don't allow banks to do, for example. So, but but that's essentially what payments is. But when I talk to an average American, he's happy with credit cards and with uh, the checking system, which has layers of dependence. You know, you've got right. ACHs, yeah. um, you know, yeah. who, who who benefit from the transaction. So um, uh, to dismantle that uh, and and finding a justification to dismantle that uh, is a process in itself. Uh, next year, you you will have uh, Fed now coming on stream. And what is Fed now is instant payment between two bank accounts. And that technology has existed, you know, for many years now already. Uh, the UK started that. Uh, we have that in Singapore today. And and uh, and the Fed now equivalent in in many parts of the world are now even cross border, um, you know. And they and they provide that service. Uh, on existing technology, um, MasterCard's Vocalink, um, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, interface with the core banking system, it, it's, it's a done deal. Uh, but the reason the Fed uh, had a problem, you know, trying to get a buy-in was because the, the existing players, um, you know, uh, had to be uh, nurtured into a new business model, um, you know, going forward. And you will see next year that uh, with Fed now, uh, that in itself is going to give greater power to the individual uh, to decide um, which institution he chooses. Because now, whether you're a large bank or a small bank, you're both on the same starting line. 
uh, because you both of the, uh, have the same global access to payment in the US, uh, instant access um, as each other. Right. So then uh, when you commoditize payment that way, uh, the financial institutions will now need to start competing on another uh, level in a different dimension. Uh, and those are the things that slows down what already exists today. You know, what's interesting, Emmanuel, is last week I was with 25 bankers from the largest financial institutions in the United States. When we asked the question, how many of you are planning to implement FedNow when it's introduced? One bank yeah, said yeah. they were. And the yeah. reason is they all said, and, and I asked, I'm going, what is going on here? And what's happened is they're all looking and saying, we haven't determined the business case yet. We haven't determined where we can make money on this yet. We haven't determined what this, you know, we need a success case study. And you realize this is what's getting in our way. It's getting in our way when we think that the future may not come if we don't support it when the future is going to come either way. It's just a matter of who we get it from. You know, in your book, you also talk about the fact that whoever controls identity controls finance. You know, this leads to discussion as to who is going to control identity. Is it going to be traditional banking? Is it going to be tech players? Is it going to be the government? Where do you see this part of the future playing out as far as who's going to actually be the keeper of the identity keys beyond the consumer themselves. You know, uh, I start my book by telling the story of ice, right? Yes. And, and how ice used to be something that you saw out of the lakes, uh, out of Michigan and in and Boston and so on. Uh, and today, where do we get our ice? We get it out of a refrigerator. What made, made, what made the difference? And refrigeration is the personalization of ice. Um, you know, and, and I use that analogy to, to actually attend to the exact, exactly the point that you just talked about. What do you mean by, um, you know, uh, who controls identity, controls, you know, finance? And, and uh, in the ice story, uh, what made the difference with refrigeration was a chemical called chlorofluorocarbon. Uh, you yep. know, and it is a synthetic chemical, um, and it absorbs heat and and then uh, enables ice to to be, I'm sorry water to turn into ice. Um, so we are looking for the chlorofluorocarbon of finance, um, and it has several elements in there. One is identity, another is uh, non-repudiation, um, the third is a credit profile. Um, you know, and and there are probably three or four more elements that are uh, that that constitutes that that synthetic chemical uh, that will enable us to um, personalize finance. Um, on the identity front, uh, and here is, it's, it's a journey uh, in that um, identity today, when you talk about physical identity, that's only one me and there's only one you. Uh, you know, but when you talk about digital identity, I can have multiple identities. I can be uh, something to you and I can be something else to someone else. Um, you know, I, can, I can take on the identity of someone, someone else uh, you know, and we can share identities and so on. So that whole identity dimension uh, is in, um, is in, in progress, is work in progress that is, uh, uh, that is going to be taking shape as we go along. Some of it will, be, will depend on what um, regulators allow people to do. Uh, and some of it is technology. It depends on where the identity is lodged. So if it's lodged in a 
blockchain, uh, then your identity in, in a certain blockchain um, will is immutable, meaning that you can't be anything other than who you were because that's where you were. But you can be a, a different person in another blockchain um, you know, uh, ecosystem and so on. So, um, so identity is becoming complex. Um, but what eventually transpires and, and, and becomes commercially viable uh, is a combination of the technology as well as uh, the platforms on which um, the business models will evolve. So um, today we think of platforms in the way that we've become used to in the last 10, 15 years or so. And it's only 15 years uh, you know, that we, we, we define platforms as uh, being where you know, all of the users uh, you know, generate their content and so on. But platforms are evolving such that, um, think, just think about this. The, the magic of cryptocurrency is not that Bitcoin went up to $65,000, but that Jim Morris can have his own cryptocurrency, and Emmanuel Daniel can have his own cryptocurrency, and every Leah can have her own cryptocurrency, and everybody can, have their, can generate their own cryptocurrency. That's already a reality today. Uh, you know? And uh, what's, what it's working into is that, uh, how do I know if my crypto will be commercially more viable than someone else's? Or would I want to uh, form a crypto alliance with um, a certain type of people uh, to create a commercially viable crypto uh, community? Uh, and that's what we're seeing as we see all the different cryptos um, working through their paces right now. You know? so, so technology already exists. Uh, the business models are work in progress. Um, and then regulation will sort of start giving it shape. Uh, and then we get into a level of certainty that we then we can recognize. So what I've not done in my book is I've not tried to be prescriptive. I'm, I'm not saying this is exactly what it's going to be. I, in fact, a lot of what my book is uh, um, focuses on elements that already exist today. Uh, right. Look at them. Don't don't ignore them. Uh, you know. And what's also very nice is this: that as I was writing my book, and especially during the pandemic era, uh, pandemic phase, um, I was actually seeing communities um, creating commercially viable ecosystems using these new technologies. So in the Philippines, for example, uh, there was play to win. Um, you know, gaming uh, uh, communities. Yeah, I was going to bring up gaming. Yep. You know, and and they 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 actually play to uh, generate tokens, which they exchange for real money and bought food and uh, you know and and uh, looked after their livelihoods in the small villages. Uh, you know, in, in a time when there was lockdowns uh, in Kenya, for example, uh, there is a community currency called Safaru Credit, uh, which uh, tries to make a, a small community commercially viable by recognizing work uh, and and creating a token that. Uh, they could pass around to say that you know this person has done uh, a certain amount of work and therefore you know give him food or something like that. So uh, and and that that community right now is trying to put that on blockchain as well. So so uh, there are examples of uh, local communities around the world uh, who are creating business models uh, around the technologies that are already in existence today. So where do you see the greatest opportunity? for what I'm going to call traditional financial entities to optimize their role in what you're calling the personalization era. What do they have to do or what resources need to be applied both the short run and the long term? So, you know, when uh, Jim, you said that the book was a little difficult to read because it, uh, it starts off by, uh, by laying the groundwork or rather setting yeah. the scenario. 
And then you'll see that I actually go into the grunt of banking as we know it today. Uh, you know, and, and it's like, why did this guy start this, you know, big picture thing and then and then goes into banking, uh, traditional banking and, and the challenges that traditional banking faces. What I was trying to do in the middle of the book was uh, trying to uh, decipher again what the real DNA of finance is. Uh, you know, finance is a beautiful, um, you know, system uh, that captures uh, some valuable um, you know, ingredients, uh, the fiber of society, um, you know. So, for example, I, I, I tell a story of um, microfinance in, in Bangladesh and in India. Uh, in Bangladesh, it was led by this wonderful man called Muhammad Yunus who won a, a Nobel, Peace, a Nobel Prize. And, and uh, it, was, um, um, it was lending to six women in a stable community. And when that model was applied on the other side, to, um, to in India to poor uh, itinerant workers who were you know, migrants between the villages and the cities, uh, it fell apart and it created lots of problems. There were a lot of suicides and stuff like that. And the local governments uh, you know, put restrictions on, on microfinance. Then you say, what is it that enables credit uh, to be applied well, uh, it's an understanding of the local society, um, an understanding of your customer and, and all that. So, so I have, in the middle of the book, I'm actually um, um, you know, trying to regenerate or recreate uh, the, the essence of finance, uh, that a lot of it has nothing to do uh, with technology uh, either. Now, something else that I say is this, uh, and, and traditional bankers will find, uh, will resonate with this. You know, the most profitable banks around the world, and definitely in the US, uh, have been the banks with a strong liabilities base, a deposit base, um, and not asset base. In other words, the banks that, um, you know, leverage their lending and, and, uh, and had a bigger loans book were less profitable than the banks with uh, a stronger deposit base. Um, and that's true about the community banks in the U.S. Uh, and and I, I go to many different countries and I test this idea and I see this, uh, um, you know, being true in, in almost every country. And then you ask why? It's because the bank with, with, a, with a clear understanding and relationship with the local community gets its deposit at the low, lowest possible price. Uh, you know, and and uh, it does not compete for deposits, uh, and has a very trusted relationship uh, with its depositor depositor base. Um, and then, when you apply that to digital finance, for example, uh, many digital banks around the world they industrialize that process of collecting deposits. In other words, what a bank could do for twenty thousand for onboarding twenty thousand customers a month, a digital bank can onboard a hundred thousand customers a month, uh, and yet. Uh, they don't have the stickiness of the relationships that the traditional banks have. And in fact, out of nearly 1,000 deposit uh, digital banks around the world, only five or six of them are profitable today. Correct. You know, then you ask, why is that? Uh, it is that industrializing the, um, the deposit relationship uh, does not necessarily mean that you get the cheapest source of funding. In fact, a lot of them um, you know, only uh, are able to increase their, 
deposit base by through a price war. It's not even the technology that they're using. It's actually I, I give a higher rate and therefore I, I win for a few months. And then the next digital bank that's funded by venture capital comes in and gives a better rate. And then that bank con continues. So so that's an unsustainable um, um, you know, uh, business model. Um, so I, I put all that in uh, to show bankers that um, Firstly, that not all of the transitions taking place in finance uh, are, are, are viable because of technology. Uh, and secondly, we need to go back to understand uh, the elements that made finance sustainable in the first place and see how they can be um, you know, applied to uh, a new digital world. Um, now, having said that, I'll say this, that as the technology was evolving, there were two things that the banking industry uh, missed a cue on, or, or two developments that uh, they missed the music on. One is uh, in the use of APIs, um, you know, uh, application programming interfaces. Uh, banks completely misunderstood that APIs were not patch solutions or IT vendors uh, who were, you know, who were designed to solve problems in the bank's internal uh, technology uh, systems. Um, APIs were meant for uh, the users of financial services to define how they wanted to uh, interact with the bank. Uh, and to this day, a lot of the uh, API development uh, structures uh, are designed around, okay, these are the um, you know, problems that we have with our core banking systems. Uh, we're going to get around them by uh, installing APIs. Uh, and can all of you sort of uh, figure out which, which of these APIs you like to develop? Um, whereas in gaming, if you see what gaming has done with APIs and the companies that have aced the API games do, uh, the API game today do, like Microsoft and Adobe and so on, they create uh, a platform where little girls can create their own games uh, to connect with uh, you know, the platform. So that's also personalization where the user defines how they want to relate uh, to the institution. Uh, you know, so banks have missed the cue on that one. Uh, you know, and because they missed the cue on the API universe, they're now going to be missing the next cue on the API universe because blockchains are actually designed that way because um, you, know, you have the transactions that are carried on the blockchain, but the applications uh, are developed by whoever wants to interact with, you know, with, the, with the blockchain and so on. So, um, so th these were the things that I was struggling with uh, in the middle of the book. Uh, and then uh, towards the end, I, I go back again into the visionary uh, element. Um, and, um, you know, and, and then I'm, uh, I'm become clearer about the, the, you know, where the industry is going uh, as a whole. So let's take a straight, short break here and recognize the sponsor of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Emmanuel Daniel, author of the book, The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finance is Here. We've been discussing the underpinnings of a complete 
completely new disruption of financial services industry and the prospects for traditional banks in the personalization era. So as you mentioned that I mentioned to you earlier, the book is not the easiest read, mainly because you build premises on history and then take it forward into areas that we're not as familiar with. We're, we're only familiar with what we see daily. And you intertwine not only finance, but society. Um, you, you've intertwined the, the technology area and everything else. So do you see the personalization era being more about technology, products, people, regulation, or is it a combination of all those? You know, America is uh, the embodiment of the personalization of, uh, of history itself. Um, you know, if history was about uh, communities and, and uh, countries and so on, uh, today, uh, you know, the U.S. is, is a country of uh, great realization uh, of um, the personalization of society, which is uh, the individual uh, is, uh, is important, is the, is the primacy of, 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 of how society holds together. And then, and then we figure out everything else. Uh, and, and, and technology is actually abetting the, the process. Uh, it's uh, making it um, easier as a result. Um, I mean, personalization started with Christianity. How's that? Uh, you know, uh, when, when, the, when the Luther Lutheran movement, um, you know, broke away from the Catholic Church, uh, they said that um, religion is about a personal relationship between man, between me and God. I don't need the church. I don't need to go through the corrupt processes of the church to to reach God. Uh, that was Martin Luther's uh, uh, basic tenant, uh, personal relationship. And therefore, a lot more emphasis is given to the responsibility and the opportunity to the individual. Right. So we've been on this journey for like four, five hundred years already. Um, you know, and. Um, um, it's just that we've reached, a, and then there was the philosophical aspects of that. Like you know, I, I put in the book um, as a as a as a um, you know by the way statement was Francis Fukuyama uh, talking about um, you know the the left and so on. Um, actually, whether you're on the left or the right of uh, politics in the U.S., um, what you're asking for is uh, a greater accountability of the individual. Um, you know, so. So I think all of society is uh, is on a march uh, towards personalization, uh, and that that process is not a neat process. It's not a progressive process. It's not reaching taking us to a to a nirvana or a you know um, a, a, a beautiful place. Um, it's a process that is fraught with um, um, a lot of. Um, um, you know, um, structural problems uh, that we, we will need to deal with. Now, there's a there's a writer that I mentioned in my in the sec in the third part of the book, which is you know when I take it off to say how do we then think about the future, uh, um, yeah. and uh, someone called Ron uh, David Ronfell, uh, and he wrote this paper in the early 1990s, and he it was then working for the Rand Corporation, and he said that society goes through four um, phases of evolution from tribal to institution, and then to networks, uh, and then to um, uh, sorry, and then to markets, and then to networks. Uh, and I found that that uh, that that perspective very very useful uh, to neatly put in place um, what it is that we are dealing at different points in time. So if you take cryptocurrencies for example, um, everything that 
um, you know, that um, Charlie Munger says about uh, cryptocurrencies as an asset class to be invested in is true. Okay, um, it is no different from gold. It's no different from shares uh, and and uh, securities. Um, uh, it 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 falls into the law of economics. Uh, you know, the supply and demand of money and and so on. Um, and that's totally that that falls. Uh, fully in the dimension of the markets economy that we, uh, we that we exist in today. And what's a markets economy? It's a buyer and a seller economy. If I sold you my house, I have to sell it to you at the highest possible price, and you have to buy buy it from me. And after we've made the transaction, I profit. You get a house, uh, and the transaction is done. Uh, and there's a winner and a loser in the transaction, right? Um, now, or a perceived winner, uh, but but basically there's a transaction. What happens in the network world is that um, if you take information, for example, it only increases in value when you share it. And when you give it away, you don't lose the information that you have yourself. And that's that's a law in operation in the network world that doesn't exist in the markets world. Um, and so when we look at the utility of, um, of cryptocurrencies in the network world, we're talking about something totally different. You know, and and uh, and that is why uh, you know Warren Buffett and uh, Charlie Munger and so on, uh, whatever they say needs to put it be put in context uh, in terms of what about that technology we are dealing with today, uh, and and what is it? What about the technology is a promise for tomorrow? Uh, you know, and and how is that tomorrow coming along? And and what are the elements that are that need to be in place for that network world to finally come about? And and we're in transition. So so sometimes we're dealing with an asset that is a buyer seller uh, situation, and then sometimes we're sell- we're dealing with a network commodity or a network asset um, that has a totally different um, uh, utility to it. So so that's how I you know partition uh, what it is that I'm looking at. And the other thing that David Ronfeld said was that. Um, you know, the tribal phase doesn't go away. It's actually T plus I plus, you know, markets, which N plus N. So uh, by the time you get to the it's network phase, yeah. all of them operating alongside with each other. So that, that I found very useful, and I put that in my book. So what are the challenges that today's financial brands need to overcome to embrace the future of personalized finance? So I have a whole chapter called that uh, called uh, the, the 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 product has to change, okay. Uh, and and uh, and the thing is that um, uh, I call it the uh, the reimagining the product, right? And um, and this is something very difficult for bankers to do. Which, as I, I gave you the example of uh, of uh, of the deposit product, bankers are so in love with the deposit product, and they do not see a day when deposit products will uh, will eventually change. Uh, you know that banks would not be selling deposits; they will be selling um, some kind of wallet, and um, you know, and anyone can sell a wallet. Uh, you know, a telco company can sell a wallet, something like that. So, so we we should not um, we we should not have we should not take any of uh, the the products that we, uh, we that we are familiar with in in finance today uh, at face value, uh, we need to uh, we need to um, ride the wave uh, of how the uh, products are evolving. Now, even products that uh, that were that were originated uh, in the digital age, if you take peer to peer lending, for example, um, I say in the book that. 
peer-to-peer lenders are misunderstood uh, what it is that they needed to care, what the product was in in a peer-to-peer lending platform. Uh, they, They thought that the product should be a loan or a mortgage just like banks sell mortgages, right. uh, except that here the the borrower and the and the lender meet each other, and therefore you don't need the bank. But the more they pushed the product as mortgages, um, the more they started looking like a bank. They were the, the more they were subject to the you know the 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 laws of mortgages, uh, you know credit risk. Uh, capital risk, uh, liquidity, uh, and uh, and all that. And guess what? Uh, a few of the peer-to-peer planner, uh, players eventually applied to become banks themselves. They they throw in the towel, right? Now, so I'm saying that um, when the productization uh, evolves, you'll find that, I, and I'm saying this, that I actually predict that the peer-to-peer revolution will take a new wave uh, when they understand that the product in peer-to-peer uh, lending was the information was the community, was the sharing of the data with each other uh, until uh, the individual is able to um, create his own product. Uh, and the product doesn't necessarily need to be a mortgage. And there's a lot of possibilities going forward. Like, like mortgages are a, a product of the, of the market's um, uh, phase of human evolution where you buy a house. But look at what's happening today. Fewer people want to buy a house. They they would rather lease a house. They would rather go out and participate in an Airbnb, um, you know, with autonomous vehicles. There's no need to own a car. Um, and the, the network world is taking shape uh, as we go along. And, and the product there is the ability to share enough information be, between all of the um, you know the players in in a in a transaction uh, until they de- decide uh, how to share the asset or how to um, you know how to utilize the asset um, and and from there the end user creates his own product uh, you know a product is not something an institution sells and it's difficult to imagine this I see this coming uh, you know very very um, in the near future in fact guess what. When you when 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 I talk to Alibaba, for example, and ask them, uh, how is it that why did you go into payments, um, you know, and 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 they said to me, and and now it's published uh, material as well, but we've known them for many years, uh, and we knew them in two thousand and ten when when they first went into payments, and they said that you know we we pro- provide this platform where buyers and sellers meet each other. And there's so much information going in uh, uh, in those transactions that right. the buyers and sellers were themselves telling us uh, where do we put the money that we are collecting? Where where do we put these escrow accounts that were being created? And that's how Alibaba went into payments, uh, you know. And that's how financial institutions should go into any products uh, in a network world. It's all information based, you know. Finally, you know, given your vision of the future, will financial institutions, as we know them today, going to disappear, transform, or maybe some combination along the spectrum? What what should financial institutions do today to be more prepared for the future of personalized banking, personalized finance? Very, very good question. And um, I, I, would, I would, you know, as a precursor to my answer, I'll say this. The United States is the only country which has the great battle between the individual, the state, the institution, um, you know, and and the community, right? Uh, 
all of which is the only country where you have billionaires who earn as much money as entire countries, um, you know, and 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 they stand uh, in opposition to banks and large businesses and so on. Um, you know, that's a great, uh, you know, and Elon Musk can throw a statement out there and, and you know and affect the entire institution. Right. Um, and and then you have the state, which also is a very powerful institution, and it's it's juxtaposed with with all of uh, with each other in that way. So um, when I I'm very careful in writing my book. I I I would even apologize if I don't come across as someone who is, um, you know, uh, biz, biz, you know, bizarre. I mean, blasé about about the about the future yeah. because I I, to, I I'm totally internalizing uh, the battle that is underway, um, you know, and and how the different players are, are going to be affecting each other. So the thing about institutions is that. Um, firstly, of course, institutions need to reimagine what they think the product should be. Uh, but our idea of institutions will also evolve because um, if institutions is a collection of people, uh, if they are organized as a um, as a community asset uh, or you know as a as a as a commons, uh, they will start looking different as if they were organized as a for profit institution. Uh, you know, so so there there are different forms of uh, of, uh, of 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 uh, institutions being coagulated, uh, and uh, and 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 also the goals for which institutions uh, uh, come together. Because at the end of the day, the profits should actually go to the individual, uh, you know, and not to an institution. So you know, so all of these are under in uh, in play. Um, the short answer, the the simple answer, um, don't. Uh, be in love with your products, um, and the role of the institution will uh, evolve. Um, and in fact, I say this uh, in several places in my book, which is, if you want to understand an institution, look at your balance sheet and what it's made of. Um, so when you look at a bank's balance sheet in 1984, it had mortgages in them. Today, if you look at the bank's balance sheet, easily 60 to 80% of it uh, are derivatives, uh, meaning they are they are um, you know derivatives of derivatives of assets. So they're not even uh, real uh, assets anymore. They they you know they they are ephemeral, uh, and therefore they're becoming um, you know asset light uh, because they are trading assets. They're not uh, fixed assets. So uh, so the institution is already changing, uh, you know, right in front of our eyes, and it's just that we. We we think that we go into the office uh, and that we have a predictable uh, experience of selling specific products and so on. But the balance sheet uh, tells us that the institution is uh, changing in the composition of what it what it holds. Uh, but that will also mean that it will change in the way it views risk, uh, customer profit, um, you know, um, and also business goals. You know, so so that's evolving. You know, it's interesting because the entire book, as I made it more concise for me, I, it's interesting because it really is about the elimination of friction in every way. I mean, the, the, everything you talk about is eliminating sticking points that make it hard to move forward at the pace the consumer really wants it. Secondly, and it's always going to be this way, the power of information and insights that, you know, you mentioned the Alibaba example and the fact that they got into payments, not because they want to get into payments, but they knew that that was where the data was. And I think looking back at banking, we got rid of all of our payments products and gave them a way to 
tech companies and to other organizations that are now conducting all the payments. And instead of knowing about what I'm buying as a bank, what's happening is I now almost every transaction is either, you know, it's, it's uh, PayPal, it's Amazon, which doesn't give me any insight, which is insight based. And thirdly, I think your, your book points out extremely well. It's the power of technology to drive this. And I, I, I look at your, your early statement about the ice and how the ice industry transformed in the early 1900s or early uh, 20th century, but, but even more the gaming industry. You know, the gaming industry has become so much about players from across the world being able to develop their own game, their identities. They change their identities on a regular basis. They're not the same person in one game as they are in another. And I think if if bankers looked at what's going on in the, in the gaming industry, we'll understand how frictionless the process is, how games can be innovated instantly and can be developed by the users themselves. And where the insights that are shared, the, the knowledge of how good a player is, how they get their points, how they apply their, their tokens, you know, in many cases, really is the future banking. Emmanuel, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I, I apologize because I can't believe we've gone three years without having you on the show. It won't be that long again. In fact, I have a really good feeling we're going to see each other in the next, oh, let's say 30 days. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Jim. And, uh, you know, you and I should uh, should gel our ideas a lot more because uh, there's so much to unpack in the conversation that we've just had. And, um, you know, let's build on this. Sharing of ideas. Thank you very much again. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoyed today's interview, please give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast application. Also, be sure to read my recent articles on the financial brand and take advantage of our reports on the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to producer Leah Haslidge, audio engineer Sean Roe Hoffman, and video producer Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember, change is almost always a painful process, but ignoring change has far greater negative ramifications. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.